Deep in the farthest recesses of the most distant jungle lies a city. A city populated by the most mysterious, terrifying, and downright grotesque denizens ever seen by mortal eye. Here, in the darkened corners of this cavernous locale, sits an ordinary, average brick building with an innocuous, ordinary, average, blinking neon sign which reads, On Air. It is here where each week, Seth Breedlove and Mark Matsky convene to discuss the greatest mysteries the world has ever known. Now, strap on your hiking boots, grab your trusty walking stick, and don't forget your machete as we begin our journey through Monsteropolis. This is Monsteropolis, a show about anomalies, legends, and monsters. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Breedlove. I'm joined, as always, by my pal, Mark Matsky. Hello there. Hi. Hey. Hi. Hey there. Um, this is the official podcast of Small Town Monsters, a production company that makes movies about uh, the crypt- cryptids, the cryptids, and the paranormal, and other weird strange subjects around the united states um i would hope if you're listening to the show that you might already know that but maybe you don't this could be yeah your initial experience this could be the first time you listen small town monsters uh this week's show is about albert ostman again this was something that was suggested on our uh on our uh, on my individual um page my my instagram feed I'd posted about this. I keep Mark. Did I send it to you? <laughs> yes, this was suggested by Mothman Forty Six. Uh huh. All right, all right. So, so uh, our good buddy Mothman Forty Six suggested this topic. So that is what we're talking about. Albert Ostman. We're gonna get into this um, here today. Get out of here. Uh, if you are uh, on, if you're a squad member, small town monster squad member, you can watch the shows. Um, on, on our YouTube channel, not li- not every episode is recorded live. For instance, this one is not live. I mean, I guess it's recorded live. It's, but it's not broadcast live. Right. Uh, however, the last episode, episode 104 was broadcast live. So that's how we're going to do it. Uh, small time monster squad cast is going to be broadcast live every single episode. Uh, also, if you're watching this and you're like, this looks horrible, it's two men talking with a webcam filming them and the, the background's so blown out, it looks like they're sitting in heaven. Um, it's This should be the last, hopefully, recording that looks this way. We have a whole new office space. This is Actually, this is probably the official final episode recorded in the old office. We've got a lot of fond memories mm. in this office. We've had, what, two or three Kickstarters in here? Yeah. We've had multiple Jeez. episodes of monsteropolis recorded here almost every one actually mm-hmm. other than the period of time where you weren't in here and even that i was recording here a lot right um so we've got a, a lot of good memories in here um but this will be the final episode recorded in the old stmhq mm. it's making me misty yeah wow yeah. live from heaven live from heaven here <laughs> uh yeah huh. so today we're talking about Albert Ostman and uh, I'm going to share this for viewers. So if you're, if you're watching, you should be able to see this. If you're listening, you should be able to see this. So we're going to go live. I'm going to show you this right now. So this, I found 
this morning. I think if I go full screen, you can still see it full screen on there. Yeah, there you go. So here we go. We're going to watch this from from the 1972 film Man Beast, which I've referenced on the show. In fact, just mm-hmm. on a recent episode. This will clue you into what Albert Ostman, Albert Ostman is all about. Hey, before I do that, Mark of the Bell Witch comes out on the 15th. I'm not sure what day this episode drops, but I think this is coming out the Tuesday after this will drop. So it's like this will drop on a Friday, should be out Tuesday. So if you want to watch it, um, it's on Amazon, Vimeo On Demand, DVD, and Blu-ray. All right, here we go. Albert Ostman. Director Albert Ostman in 1924 was camped near Toba Inlet in British Columbia. While asleep in a sleeping bag, he was picked up and packed several miles. Daylight found him in a small valley encircled by cliffs. This was home for a family of these creatures. He was able to escape after six days by getting them sick on a box of snuff. Now let's listen to Mr. Ostman's experience. Well, uh, there was four of them, and uh, they, none of them looked alike. There was uh, what I call the old man, because I had no scale or any rules for measurement, but he was at least eight feet tall and most of them had reached 800 pounds. Uh, but the, the, what I call the old lady, she, uh, she couldn't have been over about six, 700 pounds. She was probably uh, seven feet tall. And uh, uh, they were all covered with hair. Oh, it's going right to the Swamp Beast episode of Walking Dead. Um, <laughs> all right, so that was, yeah, that was it. Um, such a great, I've talked about this before, but I believe Man Beast is is as much a historical document, important historical document, as it is a, a silly 70s documentary. It's It's got other interviews um, that I really think are important uh, that, that you can see, but that Ostman one, um, that might be the one that also has the interview with Fred Beck in it. Um, or a relative of Fred Beck. Mm. I can't remember if it's Beck himself or a relative, but, but either way, there's a lot of stuff like that in it. So, uh, yeah, so we're going to talk about Ostman today for, for another account of the Ostman sighting. You can check out episode one of on the trail of Bigfoot or on the trail of Bigfoot, the legend, free on Tubi and Amazon and other places where you can watch small town monsters movies. Um, so yeah, Lostman, lead us off. Yeah. Well, the thing I appreciated about that clip is it gives you a sense of the man. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it's photos that have appeared in various books and so forth, but sometimes there is a, a, a prejudice against Osman that he's like a, a country bumpkin type character and it's really, that's not true. And I, I, that's why I'm glad that we had that clip because it shows Osman as he really was, uh, which is to say, a, you know, a smart person, uh, an outdoorsman, certainly in his younger years. Um, Ivan T. Sanderson, who got to meet Osman, among other leading lights in cryptozoology, uh, made sure to comment in his book that Osman was... Um, you know, bilingual, he could speak two languages, he was well-read. So we're not talking about somebody who's just, uh, you know, not unaware of the world around him. 
and is uh, that I guess that affects issues of credibility and so forth. And what would he have wanted in sharing the story? But I guess that that's a good place, as good a place to start as any, is that we're talking about a person who um, typically when people would sit down and meet him and talk to him, they walked away from that experience convinced that Osman believed the story that he was telling, you know, at the very least. And people like John Green, for example, who was initially very skeptical of this story and ignored, you know, didn't even pursue the story the first time he heard it, ends up talking about Osman as uh, in terms of friendship. Like he considered him a friend of his after 10 or 12 years of having conversations with the man. So all that is to say that from a, a credibility standpoint, it seems to be somebody who had had very little motivation for concocting a, a lie, or if he did, he told it extremely convincingly. Ostman claims, and I didn't know this t- till today, I'm sure you knew this, but Ostman claims he had no knowledge of Sasquatch um, prior to the same trip where he encountered the the Sasquatch, yeah. um, his his introduction to it came from uh, a native from the area who talked about a gold prospector, I believe it was, or mine. He owned a mine of some sort, yeah. Um, who disappeared in the area, and when he disappeared, the uh, the native had mentioned that he hoped he hadn't been taken by the the Sasquatch people are killed by the Sasquatch people. Mm-hmm. And that was his introduction to them. Um, and, and what he was, what was described to him was very much a giant person, like a giant hairy person uh, rather than like an animal, uh, which I thought was interesting. Cause I didn't know. I mean, obviously this is all down to whether or not you believe Ostman in any way, but I thought it was interesting that he did not have this like long held knowledge of Bigfoots or Sasquatch or whatever that mm-hmm. he was kind of like right riffing off of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And keep in mind, this was 1924. Yeah. So it wasn't as if you know, Bigfoot had entered the consciousness of the public at this point. You know, he was, mm-hmm. Osman was in the right place at the right time uh, to hear about that. But I, I love the setup. I mean, just as a story. Yeah. You know, setting aside whether it's true or false or what, but as a story, it's just this incredible setup where you've got a, a young man going out yeah, in British, you know, British Columbia, uh, Toba Inlet, mm-hmm. which is directly across from Victoria Island on the mainland, actually. And Osman has some time off. He's been working pretty hard. He wants to get away, spend some time in the wilderness. And so he hires this native guide to get him to a, a decent location. And on the way, as you were describing, he learns from the native about the Sasquatch legend. And at, again, um, at the time, the, the native guide said, these things are really rare, but they're out there. And, mm-hmm. and Osman's initial reaction was sort of a roll of the eyes, like, I, I don't believe that, but it makes for a nice story. Tell me again about that gold mine, you know, which he does then spend a little bit of time looking for. So that that combination of things to me is just like, you know, is sort of a magic combination of early 20s and the you know, rugged individual is just going to go out there and camp out, 
maybe prospect a little bit if you can find this mine and and oh yeah there's this native story that's being spun about hairy figures in the woods and then that that all leads up to what happens to him which is just uh i mean there's a reason this is a quintessential sasquatch story yeah and it has all of these elements coming together at once um ostman was discovered essentially by green if i'm not mistaken but the story did run in a newspaper long before green or the birth of bigfoot right i mean it ran in a, in a newspaper well the the way the timeline of that mm -hmm. to my understanding is that osman may have talked to some people about his experience but pretty quickly stopped doing that because of the ridicule factor Mm -hmm. And this, this to me was especially fascinating. He broke his silence because William Rowe if you reported, <laughs> sorry, reported his sighting. Right. And it, that ran in a newspaper. Um, it was accompanied by, you know, Rowe's sworn affidavit. And I guess, you know, Osman figured, well, if Rowe saw something like that and he's making that public, then I will as well and so he there's some way that um he started to talk about it mm -hmm. and green gets involved a little bit later on okay. uh, you know we're talking about 1957 at this point so the thing is bigfoot was emerging at this point yeah. in the 50s but a, a radio man who had an interview with osman after green started to get interested told John Green, if Osman's lying, then he couldn't be sure that um, anyone had ever told him the truth. Words to that effect. Yeah. The, the radio interviewer was that sold on Osman's take on the events. So after that appears in the paper, after he's vetted a little bit, that's when Green gets involved and takes it upon himself to really do some long-form interviewing of Osman um, and as was Green's mode of operation to get him to uh, sign a sworn affidavit that he was telling the truth as he understood it. He was cross-examined by a magistrate, and the story seemed to hold together. This is the, uh, what is this? I tell you, these guys at Astonishing Legends have everything. I believe this is actually the the passenger... Uh, manifest from when he came over. Okay. Um, they have all sorts of stuff on here about him. I was trying to find at the actual affidavit because I saw it earlier and now I can't remember where it is. Um, is it listed? They might have it in Green's book. I'm not sure. Yeah, it could be there. Um, okay, so so Green's credited with discovering him or helping, helping sort of put him on the map anyway. Mm -hmm. um, how do you... Uh, and we can come back to Osman himself, but how do you think this plays into the Here's larger? That. Yeah. All right. So yeah. In the matter of the Sasquatch. Oh, one thing. So, so we're actually looking at the affidavit now, but one thing that I saw that I thought was interesting was the article ran in, in the Agassiz uh, Harrison newspaper. Um, the headline top of the page, I was kidnapped by Sasquatch. Then on the left, this is all front page is another columns that, uh, that, that says uh, the headline on that one is giant, hairy giant seen all over. And then on the right side is more about 
Ostman. So that's actually two separate articles oh, wow. on the front page of that one newspaper coverage. about Bigfoot. Wow. Yeah, how they're how they're being seen all over. And this is the period in time where b- the topics being born really are mm-hmm. thrust into the the spotlight. Anyway, um, all right, yeah. Let's keep let's keep on Harrison for now, or uh, Ostman for now, before I start rambling about kidnap people. Oh, and, sure, and Bigfoot lore. Well, um, I mean. If you're not completely aware of the story, um, and part of why Osman received as much attention as he did is that his ability to describe what has happened to him was so extremely detailed. And he has his own written um, statement of what happened to him. It's pages after pages of information. But the basic outline, of course, is that he was, you know, he was camping out in this Toba Inlet area. he had a, a camp set up that he liked pretty well and uh, was doing a little prospecting, doing a little hunting. And s- at first, something was coming into his camp. You know, he was a, a self-professed deep sleeper, so he wasn't easily roused from sleep by sounds. So he would find his, his stuff tampered with. As that went on, he tried to set things up in a way that he would uh, be easy to apprehend whatever was coming into his camp. But he, that hinged on him being able to stay awake, which he could not. And he fell asleep and uh, found himself then being carried away inside his sleeping bag by something. Yet at first, you know, he describes that experience as thinking that he was in a, a landslide or something. He couldn't figure it out until it was, became fairly quickly that he was being carried by something and that the something... All, it sounded as if, and it felt as if he was uh, being carried away on something by something on two feet. Uh, when he's finally taken, he estimated the time that he was in the sleeping bag as being three hours. Uh, when he was finally dumped on the ground and fell out of the sleeping bag, he found himself uh, in the company of four hairy beings in sort of a nuclear family situation where you had the old man, as you heard him refer to, uh, the old lady, and then a younger boy and a younger uh, female. And the the whole entire experience lasted, I couldn't quite get this straight, uh, six or seven days. But it was over the, about that amount of time that he essentially lived with these Sasquatch-like creatures. So uh, the, the value in his experience for people like John Green and Ivan T. Sanderson and DeHinden was that he, if true, he was able to get this close-up observation of uh, their behaviors, um, noting things like a very crude spoken language, uh, noting that they were gatherers uh, and vegetarians or vegans, and at no point did they eat an animal in front of Osman. Mm. Um, there seemed to be some defined roles among them, uh, that in, in the sense that the, it was the old lady's job mostly to go get the food, although the, the children would also do that, assuming that they were the offspring of the old man and the old lady. And they had a place where they would typically sleep together under this... Um, like a, a rocky outcropping or cave is about 10 feet deep and 30 feet wide. And underneath that natural awning, there were um, beds that appeared to have been 
at least partially woven by natural materials and stuffed with dry grass and things of that nature. So that um, in addition, of course, to the up-close interactions that he had with these things and their physical descriptions, he was able to watch them in their native element interacting with each other and their environment. And that's what was, I think, so fascinating to uh, these initial researchers. And he he was under the impression that he was brought there as possibly to be like a a mate for the young for the young girl Mm -hmm. as well, which is weird. Yeah, it's kind of there. There are elements of the story have always reminded me of early contactee reports. And I think that's why I don't buy it. I really have always, I, and I, it might be one of those cases where he genuinely bought into what he was saying. Mm-hmm. But to me, I just never have bought the story because it seems so outrageous. The entire thing. Oh, sure. I mean, it, it I mean, it, it presumes a number of things. Yeah. Number one, I mean, that he was able to interact with these creatures and they not tear him limb from limb, right? And uh, that he was able to share objects with them. I mean, the snuff comes in later on in the story where the old man sees him taking, seeing Osman taking a pinch, and he is uh, reportedly gobbles down the whole contents of a can, gets sick, thus paving the way for Osman to finally beat it out of the little valley that they were in. Are you aware of other stories, and we're going to get into probably a little bit of like lore and, and Bigfoot stories about being carried off, but this isn't necessarily what I'm talking about. Are you aware of any other stories that, that share the same sort of details? I'm talking the, the description of the family, um, the descriptions of their behavior um, and, and th- those sorts of things rather than there's only one that I can think of off the top of my head. And it comes from, Tom Powell's book, The Locals. There's an entire chapter, maybe two, devoted to a woman who I believe was uh, deaf, who had, as a child, uh, has a distinct memory of Sasquatches coming up to her window Uh at night. And there's one particular instance where she was taken out of her room, in her home, through the window by a Bigfoot who took her to a cave where um, evidently a uh, an infant Sasquatch had died and she either saw it or saw where it had been buried. Mm. And the implication to her, she, she felt as if she was being brought there almost as a replacement for the child that had died, mm. but then was returned to her room. But that for maybe even just emotional reasons to have a, a, a child figure in the cave with this um, family. Cause I think that's, I don't think that she had the same understanding of, you know, father, mother, brother, sister, but that she was brought into this situation to offer some sort of comfort to this grieving mother Sasquatch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what she, there was no attempt to keep her there. And in fact, it was the creatures that returned her to her room, but that's the only thing that I can think of that bears a resemblance to this in terms of the closeness, um, behaviorally being able to observe sort of this, um, you know, at the very least, great ape sort of behavior of a family group. 
It's interesting. It reminds me in some ways of the the family I knew near Bolivar. Now that I said that I've done the, yeah, I alluded to never hearing <laughs> because um, they would talk about how they followed those things on horsebacks or, or on horseback back to the caves that they lived in. Um, caves. Ever since you brought up coal mines and UFOs, I've really started thinking about caves and and now I'm like more curious than ever as to the connection between caves and the unexplained, like mm-hmm. caves and entrances to the earth and like UFOs and Bigfoot. And I'm not connecting the two necessarily, mm-hmm. but I'd be curious. It makes so much sense to me that something like a Bigfoot, if it exists, would live in caves if they could, like if that presented itself, if they're in that environment and that is available to them, why would they not? Right live there yeah um and it solves a number of practical problems mm-hmm. beginning with the weather for example yeah and i think uh chimps and and apes and gorillas they'll hang out on in in rocky outcroppings if they can they'll hang out under that they use that sort of mm. thing at least to make themselves more comfortable yeah and i'm i'm wondering then if that's the case how much of a correlation there is between a, a large number of Bigfoot reports in an area and there being caves or at least large rocky, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, outcroppings. Um, Cause I'm saying this, I'm thinking about X and you've got that in X. Like you do have those, there's, there's places they could hide out in X sure. or, or, or be comfortable in X. Of course, then we have the strangeness of the fact that they're finding those nests in the, in, right. the, in the Olympic Peninsula. Mm-hmm. So we need to talk more about Bigfoot on the show. Yeah. I yeah. I'm, I think I'm ready. Um, yeah. And that the, the there's a definite correlation between that mm-hmm. and this story. That, that's one of the things that puzzle, you know, that initially Green and the rest were excited yet extremely puzzled about was the, you know, Osman was talking about uh, woven materials. And that takes a certain level of motor skill and, and of course, planning and executing. We're going to make this to stay warm. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Uh, what, what is your honest opinion on the Ostman story? My honest opinion? Well, I, there's, I'm of a couple minds okay. on it. I mean, number one, it's an, I, like I said, sort of in this, with the setup, it's an amazing American story. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's the, the great, Northwest Pacific Northwest writ large, you know, you have everything from prospecting gold to the singular survival, you know, rugged individual. And then you throw in four mysterious creatures that seem human that don't hurt him. And he survives the experience lives to tell the tale. So it's a, it's an incredible, very attractive story, but I think I'm not sure that I buy it either. And I, part of that has to do with the fact that there does seem to be some major difficulties in the um, details of the, the narrative as far as the geography yeah. is concerned. Yeah. And to his credit, John Green brings us up in Apes in, in America, mm-hmm. acknowledges that uh, where he started, Toba Inlet, to where he ended up, and the place that he names, he, I guess he, you know, he's able to, after he escapes, uh, you know, put some distance between himself and the valley and then ultimately finds his way into a camp. And I, I wish I had the name of that camp right here. It starts with an S. I have it. 
But anyway, I mean, the, the, the point is, from Toba Inlet to that camp and that salmon run was basically 60 to 62 miles. Sechel or yes. Sechel yep. Peninsula? Yeah. Fred and, uh, he was fed and provided with mm-hmm. fresh clothing. He didn't tell him about the Bigfoots. Either. Yeah. So to take his story at face value, you have to believe that the combination of the, the Sasquatch transport and the sleeping bag to the, the location to then when he was finally, you know, rescued in a sense or, or taken care of by the camp and then got back in a boat and went back to Vancouver that over essentially two days' time, he traveled 60 miles. That over extremely rugged territory, too. It's not, it's not just a flat meadow. And even if it was, that would be yeah. quite an accomplishment. Yeah. So that's a real head-scratcher. And again, I mean, Green acknowledges that as such. That's his number one reason for having a major problem with the story. And I think that's what I like about Green and I've said this on, in many different contexts, is that although he, he's positioned by some as like a Bigfoot believer, in telling the story of Osman, he's very upfront about saying, I don't know if I can buy this because there's this huge gaping hole in the story, which is namely the, this distance. How can you possibly account for it? Mm-hmm. If he was, even if you were superhuman in strength, like Bigfoots and Sasquatch are supposed to be, how do you how do you travel that distance in three hours? Plus, then in your even if you're like on this ad- adrenaline fueled rush down the mountain, I don't think you can cover that amount of, of space in the, that amount of time. So I don't you know in naming those places uh, was Osman just sort of you know I, I have no doubt. Here's what I'll say: I don't really doubt the fact that he went on this trip. I think we that's yeah. that's oh, probably. Yeah demonstrable that he actually did this sure but what experience he had out in the woods i think is anyone's guess what's really weird now that i I didn't even think of this until now is that he tells the story of after being caught uh, he shoots some type of bird and eats it and gets really sick Mm -hmm. and then makes it to safety you know if if you could i think without doing too much speculation if he was really sick and in the back of his mind had this story rattling around that he had just been told while he's out there in the middle of nowhere about Sasquatch creatures, maybe it, it, it was a it, yeah. fever dream fever or something. Dream. Oh, I like that. Wow. We just uh, debunked, <laughs> the, debunked the whole Ostman story. Um, but then, you know, what I also hadn't thought of before you said it was the abduction experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, in particular, being taken somewhere, you know, against your will, essentially, for the purpose of reproduction. Being special. Yeah. And then... Because I believe that there is something going on with contactee cases and a lot of the habituation uh, Bigfoot stories that re- sort of revolve around people finding some sense of belonging or giving themselves some sort of meaning that might not be, this sounds terrible to say, and it's, I'm not blanketing it over everyone, but I'm saying, I think this, this happens a lot and has happened a lot. There's a a sense of needing to feel like you're, you matter. And for some people, this is how they do that. Yeah. And it can be based on a sincere 
um, anomalous experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that that's hard to, ex- to explain. Sure. Like the cold, injured cold. And yeah. And stuff. Well, and, and what, what's fascinating is that in this case, I mean, Osman really was fairly closed mouth about it until Roe came out with his report. Right. And that broke the ice for him yeah. to make him willing to talk about it. So maybe he was seeking some type of verification about what he, what he had been through. There's a couple trivial things that I just want to point yeah, out yeah, too yeah. about the story that I thought were pretty cool. One is that both John Green and Peter Byrne, because Peter Byrne in his Bigfoot book covers Osman as well. Mm-hmm. They were both of the opinion that what Osman described fit Patty from the Patterson Gimlin film to a T. And they brought this up to Osman and he said no. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty cool. You know, he's like, no, because he that would have been very easy for him to jump on. Yeah, like, oh yeah, that's, that's exactly what I saw. And he said, no, it's really not. And furthermore, the one image that he picked out that he felt represented what he had been up close to was an illustration made by Roger Patterson. That's in one of his books, and John Green described it as the least human of any of Roger Patterson's illustrations. So by Osman's own reckoning, what he had been spent time with seemed to be far less humanoid and more in the direction of uh, ape-like creature, hmm. evidently. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, that is. And then the other detail, and I, I shared with this with Andy too yesterday, because he's like, what are you, what are you reading? It, it just imagine this for like fans of the initial uh, Bigfoot romantic world you know the world of the 1950s this meeting actually happened you had albert osman being visited by ivan t sanderson and his traveling companion robert christie was his name john green and mr and mrs renee de hinden all at once that meeting actually happened and that just is it's like something out of sasquatch odyssey Mm -hmm. uh to me and just the idea that these, you know, there was a time when that group of people, A, were able to tolerate each other, yeah. and, and B, that they could get together on a meeting like this. And uh, it's just, it's utterly fascinating to me uh, how they were able to, to get that together. And if you have the book, um, you know, that Ivan T. Sanderson wrote, Abominable Snowman and Legend Comes to Life. He has quite a bit to say about his personal interactions with Osman, and it's very interesting. Hmm. And it's written in typical Sanderson style, so, which is to say very stylistic. Uh, but I think he, he, he stops short of saying that he, he buys what Osman is saying. Uh, but you know, he, to his credit, he wanted to get that audience himself with the man, and he got it. Hmm. And I just, I just love thinking about this group of, of people you know, descending on Osman and him giving yet another presentation. The other thing that uh, strikes me out of that interaction is Sanderson decided to go in there um, as sort of the bad cop, which is sort of a weird, I, I have a hard time thinking of him that way. He doesn't tend to present himself that way. But in this case, he wanted to ask hard questions and he was there to try to catch Osman in some sort of fabrication. And he, he didn't. But um, DeHinden and Green were ticked off that he did it because he didn't tell them that he was going to do that. 
And so this was someone who by then they felt like they'd cultivated this good relationship with. They thought of him in a very friendly way. And Sanderson goes in there and is like the big game hunter. Listen, you piece of... Yeah, (laughs) basically. (laughs) And they were none too happy about that. So it's just that whole... The dynamics of that whole group is so interesting to me. Uh, it's a it's a great story. It's a big piece of of the Bigfoot puzzle. I didn't even get into other cases of Bigfoot being taking taking people. Uh, there's there is a history of that, and certainly it's part of the mythology and the lore of Bigfoot. We'll we'll talk about that at some point. Bigfoot as kidnapper. Mm-hmm. Um, if you like the show, you can leave a rating and review on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you listen to it. Mail goes to monstropolismail at gmail.com and you can watch the show on YouTube as part of Small Town Monster Squad. Hit the join tab on there and become a member to watch. Mark of the Bell Witch is probably out by now or about to be out. Watch that. And on the Trail of Hauntings which features Mark Matsky and apparently myself uh, (laughs) As far as you know. Yeah, sometime in early January. So I think that does it for this week. So thanks, thanks for tuning in. Oh, you know what we should say? Coming up, well, no, no. Coming up soon will be our our ghost episode. Oh yeah, ghostly tales around the the fireplace. Yeah, make a suggestion if you got something you love—a ghost, a spooky Christmas ghost story. Send it in. So I'll I'll read it, and I don't have to do any research. <laughs> All right, uh, we'll see you next week. Monsteropolis is proudly presented on Wadsworth Community Radio 97.1 FM or streaming live at wadsworthcommunityradio.com and is proudly underwritten by Thurber's Jewelers on the Square in downtown Wadsworth. Wadsworth.